2: Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Queer I Am, the podcast, live and unscripted. I am so excited to share this with you. The podcast has been recorded over eight weeks in front of a live audience at Arco Beleno, an inclusive queer space in the heart of Kemptown, Brighton. I am so proud to be partnering with Arco Beleno and cannot thank Luciana, Nick and the whole team there enough for their support and generosity in the making of this season of the podcast. If you haven't been there before, please check it out. Not only do they have an incredible Maltese menu for you to explore, but they also have a range of cocktails, drinks and a regular schedule of entertainment for you to enjoy. The podcast is also being supported by their production company, Across Rainbows Productions, and film for YouTube. So if you didn't get to come to one of the live shows, you can find these videos at your leisure on the Across Rainbows YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe, give the videos a like and leave any comments you may have. We also had several authors participate in the shows and Kemptown Bookshop were on hand to sell signed books by the authors. You can check out this beautiful bookshop in the heart of Brighton, but make sure you take your credit card because you will not leave empty handed. The shows feature a panel of guests where we'll be talking all things queer and an audience Q&A too, an opportunity for everyone to get involved in the conversation. So whatever you're up to, this is your time to settle down, relax and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Queer I Am. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. <laughs> hi. Um, so thank you all so much for coming to the first episode of Queer I Am, the podcast, live and unscripted. Um, I'm saying unscripted because its I want it to be a really free conversation. So I've got some prompts and I want to ask questions, um, but I want it to be a safe space. So, And that's also for the audience Q&A. So at the end of the show, we'll have an audience Q&A. I want this to be a really safe space where everyone can say what they want to say, be respectful, but just have an open conversation about the topic. And today we are talking about understanding and exploring identity, which is um, an interesting topic in itself. So before we begin, I want to say a big thank you to Arco Beleno and Luciana, Nick, and the whole team here for their support with this podcast, because this is (laughs) amazing, Um, like... 12 months ago this didn't exist so to be here now doing a live show is incredible and we've got wonderful tom filming and that's all down to arco and to the across rainbows productions team so thank you so much for that and we also have kemptown bookshop as well here and they're going to be here for the whole eight weeks as well so when we have um authors here they'll be signing books helen's got some amazing books over there she'll be signing today Um, we were going to have S.J. Watson here today but unfortunately he can't make it due to some personal reasons so um, in a way it's good because no one needs to share a mic because I've only got five (laughs) Um, but um, there are some books there from S.J. as well and if you haven't read them please check them out because they are absolutely incredible I've got some prompts so what else was I going to say right yes you probably all follow me on Instagram anyway or follow the podcast because I know most of you here but I've put some cards on the table um, and if anyone doesn't follow the podcast or follow me on socials, please do for all the updates on the season, but also check out all the previous episodes from the first two seasons because we've done 27 in the last like nine months, which is just ridiculous. Um, and lovely Julian is here from Church Road Studios Who does all the audio, all the production Ooh. And it's a pleasure So this is kind of like really cool And he'll be doing this as well um, Over the next the next few weeks as well So, uh, I think that's it Let's introduce the guests This is the important part So I have some amazing people here today And I'm so happy that you're all joining me for this conversation So we have Anthony Barnett, Shallow Vera are the beautiful Darkwa to the gorgeous Nathaniel J Hall, and the super talented Helen Trevorrow. And we've got some shots, so I think we should just have a shot before we start. Oh, <laughs> <a shot>.
4: okay.
2: <laughs> These are the Maltese shots, Luciano. Right, I'll pass it. To so, you. You what is
4: the name of the
2: alcohol? What's it called?
5: Prickly, pear, oh shut. Prickly
2: okay.
6: pear. Cheers, bottoms cheers. up. Uh,
2: nice. Cheers, everyone, cheers. Thumbs up. Cheers. God, this is not going to end well, is it?
5: <sighs> oh,
2: I'm really Yeah, that's mm. nice. Yeah. That's great. You need to order more Twisties, though, because those are my favorite crisps. So, we are talking about understanding and exploring identity. And before I start, um, every episode I've done over the last couple of seasons, I've asked the same question. And I'm going to start this as well, because It's a bit of an icebreaker. So, if you had to choose a song to reflect your mood right now in this moment, what would your songs be? And I'm going to start with Helen.
6: Um, 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 uh, uh, Do you want to start? (laughs) You know, I said Helen. I knew you would ask that, but um, my mood's changed, actually, since I got in here. Um, In a good way, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Because before, I was a bit like... I was a bit like the Smiths, this charming man, I would go out tonight. But but now I've warmed up a bit and I'm a bit more into a kind of maybe um, um, a sort of Gladys Knight type kind of like deep soul kind of feeling.
2: Love it. Amazing.
5: Any particular song? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Nathaniel? Um, I think I am in a relaxed by Frankie Goes to Hollywood kind of mood. Ooh, yeah, Nice. <laughs> yeah. Need a t-shirt
2: to kind of... Yeah,
5: yeah, Frankie says relax.
2: Yeah, nice. Nathaniel
5: says relax. Yes. <laughs> just relax.
2: Relax, said, everyone. Said to you before, just relax. Just relax. For the just chill. Go with it. Dark what?
4: Mm, I think I would be probably haunted by Beyonce from, I can't remember which album. Oh, the
2: Beyonce album. Yeah. Oh, that's a tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Love
4: that. Very that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm oh. feeling... Dark and broody, but energized and really cunty.
2: <laughs> Amazing. Shallow? I'm sorry, I keep calling you Shallow. I just call you Shallow. You're not on? I don't, I don't not really on. need
7: one. Do oh, don't
2: This is a drag queen that uses microphones most weeks.
4: Oh my god, how do you. I don't know. This, this, is, this is advanced <laughs> technology.
2: Oh, this is your one. I don't know. Oh, hang on. Oh, it's the button on the it was all
5: going so well.
2: <laughs> we will be editing the show just to let
5: you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had to do this. <laughs> <laughs> It looks yeah. like it's on now.
0: Oh, it does look take on. support. It, oh,
2: it's up. Oh, 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 no, no, oh no, it's on. <laughs>
7: <laughs> okay.
2: Hello. Oh, it's on. There you go. That was that simple.
7: True, <laughs> true. He
2: uses it? the microphone.
7: people <laughs> usually turn it on for me. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so if I could be any song, I'd probably just be something by like Bewitched. It'll be a witch, show me. Just something. Well, like blame it on the weatherman. Or? Yeah, I'm really shit in camp. Like that's <laughs> what I'm too so love. Yeah, that's what I'm feeling today. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. Be witch, look it in. Okay, right. my, I'm,
2: I'm Tina because this morning I needed like strong female energy, so I listened to lots of Tina this morning, and I watched the Oprah and Michelle Obama into your Netflix to channel my inner Oprah. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. It's amazing. Um... I'm not paid for that, but just watch it. It's a good interview. You're not paid for it, it yet. And sorry, yet, You're not paid yet. yet, yeah. yeah. Manifest um, that money. Yeah, maybe one day I'd be doing a show and giving giving everyone a car or something. I don't know. Um, but I think a bit of Tina for some strong female. Yeah,
7: you wouldn't be the first gay person to suggest that on a Sunday, would you? <laughs> no, 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 completely not. No.
2: So let's explore the word identity. That's my first prompt here. So. As I said, free conversation. What does identity mean to all of you? Let's start with you, Darkwa.
4: Okay. Um, what does identity mean to me? I I think identity maybe is threefold to me. I think I ha- you, I think when I look at identity, I think of my identity at my core, myself, who I am when I'm alone, when I'm quiet. Um, I think about identity as I move through the world um, in spaces that I do not know, um, whether it's new spaces, school, work, whatever. And then I also think about identity in amongst close friends and family, because due to codes of respect and conduct, etc, and cultural background, you will also express your identity in different ways. So I whenever I think of identity, I always think of these three things. Mm -hmm. And then I think, how do I bring my core to each of these different things? That's pretty interesting,
2: yeah. Because I think we all have different relationships with different people, don't we? So we have to not conform, I guess, but we do have to filter maybe sometimes.
4: Yeah, definitely. I think, and and not only that, but like we have to remember that like despite the fact that we can actually like speak and use words (laughs) and stuff, we're just animals also, right? And so we fall into habit. Mm -hmm. And so... If I know that with this person, I am more of a listener, even when I feel like I am in pain and I need to be listened to, it takes a moment to gather yourself and go, wait, hold on a second. In this situation on this day, I don't think that this is a role that I can play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think with that as well, and taking those three different like spheres of existence for identity as I perceive it, I think that when I think about identity, I think that it is an essence of a person. If I was to define it, identity is an essence of a person that is consistently in flux um, due to the movement of said person Mm -hmm. through different spaces, environments, etc.
2: Okay, that's
5: amazing, Nathaniel. Right, I've got to follow that. You have. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Good luck. Ooh, all right, <laughs> I wish I'd gone first. Now, um, identity—what does it mean? Oof, how long have you got? Um, I think for me, like I think. Well, I think for us, like as queer people or people, you know, from the LGBTQIA plus umbrella, I, like our identity is is so much a part of who we are because because we have to. Well, often we live hiding our identity for a very, very long time in our formative years, you know, um, and whether that be with our family, in school environments, and then then in early life, in work, and for some people, you know, even into later life. And I think when you then discover who you are and discover your tribe it's really, really liberating. And that, you know, that's what the, the pride movement is all about, is about stepping out of that shame, isn't it? And going, like, with pride, sometimes I have a, a problematic relationship with pride because it's like, well, I'm not proud all the time. Like, I carry a lot of shame for a lot of things in my life. But I guess it's about saying that we're not going to internalise the shame that other people project onto us. Um, um, but we're so, our identities are so politicised, you know, so as a queer person, you walk into a space like I, I talk to it like like queer friends and they're like, I'm not political. I'm like, you are <laughs> like you walk into a space. You you radically change the the energy and the makeup in that room the minute you step into it. Um, and that's a lot like that's a lot to carry. You know, we don't always want to be radical. We don't always want to have to. You know, like declare who we are, but it's sometimes easier. It's easier to not. I mean, I was on the the phone to I was a salesperson or something, and the other day, and they they just and I've not had this ever. They they just assumed that my partner my my partner was female. And I, talk, I, I, but I told, I told my, um, I told my partner, and he was like, really? It's <laughs> like with that voice. I was yeah.
7: like, all right. <laughs> I was like was the telephone on? Was yeah. like, but
5: um, but yeah, I think you know, for uh, identity becomes a really big thing when you've had to hide it for so long. And I think that's why so many of us, you know, have a, v- a visual code or a visual identity that we really, really, we put the war paint on when we step out into that world because A, it helps us identify and see other people like us easily and, and you know, and kind of knowing, nod, but also um it, it helps, it kind of helps protect us as well.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think when you walk into a queer space, you know, you're surrounded by people that, are accepting and know you. There's a different feeling, but when you walk into a space where you know, and me and my husband have done that many times, you walk into a space and you are like, "Wow, we clearly are the only queer people here." It's like, right, okay, and you you do you find you filter yourselves, you conform, you. <coughs> talk about stuff that you don't even really give a shit about because you think you need to fit in and have well, it's, it's
7: fight or flight isn't it that's yeah. what it is, it's a complete defence mechanism that we self-program through years and years of conditioning and being surrounded by a majority different group, being a minority and you learn to conform as a survival instinct it's a complete adaptation if I at butcher, I'm not going to get my head kicked in today, if I at butcher if I talk about football, I can be one of the lads for a second before I mince off down the street um, it's all just a way to conform and self-preservation this is why I don't like to take it into part of this. my identity as such, that's part of my survival instinct my yes. identity is who I am intrinsically inside and the more that I get the confidence to sort of project that outwardly and show how I feel on my inside. That, for me, is my identity, and that's why I like to dress the way I dress and wear what I want and have people... It doesn't matter because it's taken years and years to get to that point where I feel confident and comfortable enough to show my my actual, my self-expression, yeah. and my personality as it was, and that's how it feels to me. So for me it's just like a building progress, building confidence. Okay, I'm gonna show that bit of me today. Okay, today I'm, okay, I'm gonna grow my hair a bit longer. Okay, I'm gonna go out today, I'm gonna wear a skirt, and I'm gonna feel fucking wonderful, and I'm gonna feel incredible, because I can, because I feel great. Yeah. And that's all part of my, my identity. These things make me feel good, and they make me feel powerful. And it's all brought out of shame. Just like you were saying, we spent all of our lives being so ashamed of these different things. I've got camp voice, I've got a limp wrist, I'm a feminine, I'm not masculine enough. And as I've got older, I've learned to like really fucking celebrate these things. They're my favorite parts now. And that's now what I consider to be my identity because they're the truest parts I've always been the most afraid of. Yeah. And now I think it's absolutely brilliant and my favorite bits.
2: Yeah. Yay! Yay. It's it's their superpowers in a way. That's how I see it. It's almost like those things that, it sounds really cliche, but it's like the things that we hide become our strengths because when we tap into them, we become the best versions of ourselves. That's how I've definitely felt. You agree?
4: That part. Um, (laughs) I was just sitting and talking to my partner because I am... I'm going to say I'm kind of like a mother, but not really a mother, because, you know, she didn't birth, but, you know, mother. (laughs) Um, And sometimes I'll be having conversations with some of my children, and we'll be talking about the way that they are having issues with relationships or people that they're going after and so on and so forth. And we sit down and we talk about it for a while and I'm like, okay, wait, hold on a second. It looks like you're chasing the man that you either want validation from or want to maybe see in yourself. And that's why you're going for these people that ultimately end up making you feel like you are ugly. Because rather than stopping and looking inward and getting to grips with you and your identity, you're looking for validation in your identity from someone who doesn't understand and never will understand. So maybe for a second, tell the men to pause and just take a
2: second for yourself. You know, We talked about this outside, I mean, we'll come on to this in a bit, yeah. but we had this conversation outside earlier, didn't we, about yes. celebrity. And mm-hmm. so we'll come on to that. Yeah. Helen, I want to talk to you about um, kind of growing up and the influences and society expectations, all that kind of stuff, because we obviously have spoken before and you were really frank in one of your books about your Catholic upbringing and the fact that actually that influenced how you felt about your sexuality and your identity. So are you happy to share a bit more about that?
6: Yeah, so I mean, I I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. I was in a convent which was really fucking great, actually, for me in an all-girls convent as a teenager.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
6: um, but, yeah, so, you know, I was the only gay person that I knew. And when I started to realise I was gay, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm what am I going to do? I mean, I could lose my family, um, I could be ostracised. I mean, I was just kind of like, I need to get to town I need to get to London, I need to get a really good job. Number one on my mind wasn't kind of expressing my identity. It was uh, not to cover it up, but it was just to not draw attention to myself so that I could just live freely and do what I wanted to do. Yeah. So um, so that's what I did. And I had a career and, you know, in my identity, it, it's changed... It, it, the, my, identity for me is the way that I see myself inside and I don't feel that I have to for me it's just it's like an internalised I know who I am and that's who I am and that hasn't really changed but things that happen in your life change it completely and at the moment my identity it is shaped by being a lesbian but it is also shaped by my parents dying becoming a mother having a child I mean it it changes you in ways and you have to you know that's all part of my identity now but when I you know and I've got quite a sort of corporate serious job go to lots of meetings and all of this sort of shit and you know people just think I'm like a middle-aged household they don't know who my partner is if I'm wearing my work clothes no one really knows who I am or anything like that so when I came to writing my books I just felt that You know, you can write for market, and I write thrillers. So you can write a thriller, and most thrillers focus on, in that genre, you know, is this person, is this woman's husband trying to kill her? You know, we've seen all of these, like, millions and millions of that concept recycled. And when I came to write, I just thought I'm going to be completely uncompromising about the gayness and queerness in this book. So the sex is going to be described fully, unashamedly. Go for it, and and that's the way that I write my books. So you know, when you're talking about you know looking a certain way or wearing certain clothes or whatever it might be, for me that happens in my books. So I go around my uh, in my life looking like a middle-aged lady, and um, I'll stop it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Um but my books are that's my expression of my identity. I and mean, it's totally uncompromising. Book
2: one, we've talked about this a lot. Yeah. I read the sex scenes and I wished I was a lesbian. <laughs> Because they were hot. They were, I was like, fucking hell, this is amazing. Which book's that? This is In buy. The Wake. In The Wake. I had to phone
6: okay. my aunties in Ireland and say, you just might want to skim over a few pages. <laughs>
2: Seriously, grab the book. It's amazing. But I think that's so interesting. Do, do you feel that, I mean, do you feel free in your nine to five? Because I guess what you've touched upon there is like, you know, business. And of course, we all have certain images and things we have to portray. There's That's standard, right? We have to form I guess a part in our lives yeah but do you feel that that is not an issue because you get to have that outlet with your your creative yeah work? I
6: absolutely get to have that outlet so I'm not in the, everyone I everyone I know knows that I'm gay you know there's no so I'm not in the closet in any and haven't been for since I was 16 so um but you know coming out you're just constantly telling people aren't you yeah. Never and the, the cues are easy if you look a certain way it's easy people know so you don't have to say it but you know if, if you look just you know if you don't have that people will assume certain things about you mm-hmm. so yeah my books are my are like they're a manifestation of my identity in that way they're not about me the characters it's all fictionalised but that's my way of expressing my yeah
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> that scene <laughs>
6: you know there are they're just they're manifestations that's what i do so when i write that's absolutely what i do so no my new book that i'm writing i've finished writing it and that's about you know so it's a thriller it's about phone hacking it's very fast paced but you know there's a lovely lesbian romance in there as well
2: nice so i've tried to
6: be a bit my romantic. but i guess that's important as
2: well because if you think about like i guess we're all of a similar age i think i'm 12 speak <laughs> for
5: yourself andrew <laughs>
2: but i think you know growing up representation of queer life was so negative so actually to create Absolutely. art which you then can portray that in a positive way yeah that's so important isn't it yeah you need to totally. do
7: that it's- coming out is one of like the strangest things, especially if you're like, so if you're from a religious family yourself, myself was from a very like working class dad's a builder family, council state, um tiny little rough Tory town as well, so like coming out was one thing which was brutal enough and then I started doing drag and I had to come out again as a drag queen and then I had to tell people in this small time that I wasn't transsexual because they didn't understand drag, they'd never had one and then whereas I was non binary and then I came out again. It's just been this constant cycle of having to come out to people and wonder about what people like oh when am I gonna stop worrying about what other people fucking think of me? <laughs> I'm just like but it doesn't end. It doesn't end. It's intrinsically there.
4: It doesn't I feel like just coming off the back of the coming out consistently. I think one of the biggest things that I've had to consistently do is not necessarily come out to myself, but recognize and really see myself my one of my favorite stories to tell is like my first pride that's where I learned what it was to feel ugly um, because yeah that's yeah, so no, fucking like shit high key my first ever pride that I went to I learned what it was to feel completely ugly and undesirable because I was like I was like yes I'm gonna work out I'm gonna be in the shorts I'm gonna do all the things I'm gonna be my friends it's gonna be great I got there, danced with a couple of people, they're a bit standoffish because I was like with my friends but my friends were like off and I was like you know what they don't know me that's okay. Dance with another person, dance with another person and then like slowly I realized I was consistently getting the same response and this was when I was like maybe 16, 15 and someone just goes to me hey you're really hot but like I'm just not into black guys and so for me, in that moment, I was like, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm gay and I have a community, but I'm black, so I might not.
7: That's so sad. And
4: having to see yourself in that light and what that does to your identity or your sense of identity is, like, wild. I, I don't even know how it affected me. I think I went into overdrive of, like, consistently trying to do things where... I could project my identity in a safe way, so like styling editorials, you know I worked for gay times for like two years, and I put all of my identity into that, all of the models and the clothes that they were wearing and all of that. And when I no longer had gay times, um, I then felt like I had nothing and I had no identity, and then I realized I had to, you had to stop and look back at all of my work. And look at all of these editorials. One where there's like two boys, two guys, and not not boys. We're not saying boys. Um, two two hard.
7: guys. Discussion. I know. Yet.
4: Before you know it, I'm gonna be on like Fox News and like <laughs> black trans woman wants to fuck boys in a park. No, that's not what it is. Um, but yeah, so you know, look, looking back at stories like two guys like in. Um, Hampstead Heath who were like hiding behind like carnival like stuff so they can like maybe like share like a, an intimate moment or um, stories where there's like disco streamers and black, black men and black people who have their hair blown out and teased in all sorts of ways and all this time I was shaved head, beard eyebrows, white t-shirts, skinny jeans, converses. Yes, I was a Clapham gay. Um, <laughs> I didn't live there, but I was. And I, if anybody says this outside of here, apart from on the podcast, I will find you and I will sue you. Uh, uh,
7: that's um, the most perfect description
4: I've ever heard. In my life. <laughs> but you know, like, so also experiencing my identity, I've had to sometimes be told what my identity is. And look at the identity that I'm being told is mine. And from that, unpick what is society's problem and what is actually my problem. And I think going through this journey as a black, non-binary, trans femme, potentially trans woman, we don't know, but she, her in the pronouns now? Um, it's just the the whole idea and concept of identity then becomes so much more politicized as well and you feel like your identity is not your own. You have people talking about healthcare and talking about mental health and talking about how you identify and they have no idea. You have people telling you because you don't have a vagina you'll never know what it's like to feel like a woman but I'm here to tell you that a post-op or a pre-op woman who is trans is a fucking woman so fuck you.
2: Absolutely. It's
7: been... It's at this, so I'm so glad we're having this discussion today at this time. I don't think it could have happened at a more perfect opportunity because it is at the minute. It's quite scary how politicized and the sheer level of like unbridled hatred like actual hatred I on a day to day basis and to be honest it fucking wears me down and then you get to a point where you either get frustrated or you blow up about it and then you look like a completely mental person because I was like why are you so triggered I'm like because I literally am reading this 90% of my day and I was like oh my god it's okay so I'm like they're mentally disturbed or they're a sicko or they're a pervert I mean it's it's mad and then Lewis Capaldi can get naked with a fucking wrestling fucking thing oh my god he's just pants isn't he so it's this complete double standard and i get so frustrated with it and i was like why do you get so angry and i'm like i don't know how else to to feel after a while and it's like why do i not do i not get to feel angry about it is that not very that
4: that. you're literally telling me you don't exist meanwhile i'm standing in front of you you're telling me i can't use this bathroom and i can't use this one so which the fuck one should i use what do you want me to do
7: yeah and the last people who dehumanized in that way, let's face it, caused the World War II. So do you know what I mean? When you start viewing people not as human beings and you start viewing them as other-thans or undesirables, lesser-thans, that means they think of you as less than you. You don't deserve as much. Okay, they're not human. They then start to view it in an animal basis or a medical basis, and then you become a cast-off. And then they can do whatever they want you, whatever they want, because they don't feel morally obliged because they don't consider you to be on the same human level. And that's what's scary. That's what scares me. And you see like, the, like a public perception changing and it grows and it gathers like force and it rolls. And you know I mean? like, It creates tension. And you see people, like, it gets heightened and heightened. It gets fed into by society and by media and it's fueled. And it's like a tinderbox and it terrifies me. Like, this is the feeling that's growing. And if it's doing that and it's doing that and it's not getting stopped, that's what i'm like it's I, i'm scared for people for showing their identity and having it because it's putting even more of a target on your back just by living openly and freely it then makes you liable to be oh well you asked for that because you're out in the street and you look that way or you asked for that because you are who you are Do you know what i mean and that's that's something that needs to be completely quashed yeah completely
2: i think we, you've mentioned about social media and media generally and I guess upbringing, you know, so much informs how we see identity. So, and, you know, there'll be kids now seeing the news, seeing all the kind of hate to trans people. Yeah, and it's like, we hold that, don't we? We we don't just let that go. That sticks with us. That's what, that's what causes shame and causes us to feel less than. So what were the common things that you heard growing up that really kind of made you think about identity in a different way or hide that aspect of your identity? Start with you, Helen.
6: So th- things that I heard growing up. Oh God, I mean, you know, even now, if you want to listen to it, you can, you can hear it, yeah, the whole time. So um, I don't know. I mean,
2: it's like common thing, like things that you know. I mean, we've talked about you've talked about how the fact that you wrote the letter and oh yeah, there's different things that you did and yeah. to almost like pray pray my the gay my- away, I guess. <laughs> yeah
6: God rest your soul mum yeah sorry I'm going to slag my mum but it's like there. there's sorry things we
2: hear whether they're intentional or yeah, not intentional yeah but no
6: that was it I mean I, I used to um, there's there's a yeah basically I used to pray in the mirror Name of I was very religious I used to go to church all the time and um, I used to pray in the mirror dear God please don't um, please don't let me be a nun and please don't let me be a lesbian and you know that was yeah I mean I was about 13 and that's that's what I used to, yeah, pray. Because, so, yeah. yeah. But the, you know, on the... In my book, New Brighton, I um, conscientiously wrote a trans woman in the, into that story because I think what popular culture can do is that um, is it can create really positive role models, characters. They don't have to, you know you know, you're saying everything is politicised, but when you're in fiction, they don't necessarily have to be politicised. They have to be there and they have to be positive. They They have to feel real and they have to do something amazing. And so in New Brighton, the sidekick, Gloria, is a trans woman... And, you know, and I was nervous about doing it a bit because I didn't want it to be taken the wrong way. I did it wholeheartedly in the right way and everyone fucking loves that character. Everyone loves Gloria and they're like, she's a brilliant character and she basically kind of, you know, saves the whole thing. She's amazing. But I think that popular culture and fiction... I think we need, more, we need more of those kind of characters and they need to be everywhere and they need to be in different stories, cropping up, doing things. They don't have to be on Instagram. They don't have to be, you know, they just need to be in the, in the fabric of the real story, living real lives and doing things that are interesting and believable and, yeah, getting them on the radar. I just think that's one way that popular culture can okay. try and help.
2: I guess it's so people, are see, they see themselves, they're reflected back. You know, that's what yeah, I love Yeah, and they
6: see a positive. They don't see yeah. a lesbian who's a murderer at the end, which yeah. is like a common trope. Yeah. And that we disband these uh, common tropes in the same way we don't see a trans woman as a, as a murderer. You know, we see them in a different light doing something really positive, seeing them being really powerful and ingrained and loved in the story and part of people's lives. That's really, and that's, yeah, that's what can you do to help, you know? Yeah. yeah.
7: Invisibility is like key because people are still losing their shit over a fucking black mermaid. Do you know what I mean? So like we've got to yeah, and we're here, we're queer, and we have no fear. Um <laughs> It's like, I'm playing all the time, I do I put a gay character, oh, it's all you see and it's, it's not, that we'll get like one character or somewhere implanted into some like mainstream franchise. People get mental. Like absolutely they lose it's their It's crazy, sh- isn't it? They lose it? their shit, don't yeah, they? Yeah, it's crazy. And it's like it's like you do realize this is what I i've been seeing from my side every day for my entire life is is that and that's that's all i'm force-fed every day i don't want to see some guy finger his wife but here we are so it's like (laughs) so absolutely
2: what about you nathaniel what like kind of key things did you hear growing up that made you feel being gay the the first
5: thing i want to say is that like despite all this like we're all here and we're all fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like I always say, queer people are like pure magic, yeah. like pure, pure magic. And whenever I'm feeling like it's too much, I look to the, the amazing queer role models that I have in my life friends and artists and, you know, and people that I, I look up to and admire. And I go, oh, great, you, I, it, we can do this. We've got it. Um, and, you know, for me, um, growing up in a, in a... I was a Section 28 kid, so that, went, that came to power the year before I started school, and it was repealed the year I left school. So very much in that kind of era of don't talk about gay at school. Gay was not... I mean, I've been to some schools now, and actually some schools are doing really great work. Like they've got LGBTQ groups and support groups. And I'm like, what is this? That That's amazing. My mind. Where was <laughs> but, that when we were but, growing up? you know, up. For, for me, you know, gay was was a slur. It was used as a, as a pejorative as negative. Um, and uh, and it was never picked up on by teachers. This is the worst thing. Well, I remember having a conversation with a, an English teacher. Um, you look up to your teachers when you're in secondary school, and then you go back to them, you're like, they're only like twenty-three. They don't know shit, do they? Like, they're just like they think they're adults, and they're like they're only like a f- six years older than you. Um, but um, but they they were saying that like the word "gay" being used as a negative can't be changed because language is just it it evolves naturally and you can't stop it. I was like, what? I was like trying to kind of come out and talk about it, but but also like I remember like yeah that that kind of whole culture and I, so I. I had to remember really, really clearly my first experience of seeing a gay person, an authentic gay person, talk about being gay. And it was in Sex Ed, um, which was delivered by my maths teacher, who was really out of their depth. And they wheeled out, you know, they remember the TV on the stand, like with the big strap over it, wheeled out to the front of the class and put this video on. Um, and it was of a gay man who was dying from AIDS. Oh, my God. Right, so this is 2000 and t- 2001, maybe, 2002. So it's wildly out of date because hiv Effective medication came in in the mid-'90s. So this, this is really, really out-of-date stuff that we're watching. And I was sat at the front of the class being someone who was often bullied for being... I wasn't out, but, you know, for being perceived as gay. And I could feel 27 pairs of eyes in the back of my neck, and it was like, do not move, do not flinch because they might sense that yeah. you're one of them. And it was so powerful because it was like, that's your fate. It was like, you remember Coach Car in Mean Girls? just like, get him, don't, don't, get, don't have sex because you will get chlamydia and die. It was that, but it was like, don't be gay, you'll get AIDS and die. And so two years later when the prophecy came true when I was 16, for my first time you know you can imagine the level and the power of that shame and how that then controlled me for a very very long time so I wonder how many other gay boys saw that film you know like we never had anything awful queer at
6: school we had nothing at St Bernard's Convent at all in fact the um (laughs) The, um, the pages in the biology book had all been ripped out and a sticker put in saying the RE department will deal with this. No one's actually ever told me. Um, yeah. How
2: about sex?
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
6: That's BetterHelp H E L P
2: (laughs) I think that the thing is, you mentioned a really interesting point there because well, a couple of points. The eyes on you, that's something that I've always felt. I remember just feeling like they know, they know, they're gonna they're gonna find out, they're gonna say something. And you'd be in a situation. Something would come on the. T- like I remember being. This is ridiculous. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I remember watching Supermarket Sweep with my nana.
0: Dale <laughs> Winton, right?
2: And I remember just thinking, "Oh my god, she'll she's going to say something. She'll she'll because it you when someone is talked about in a queer way or they they're you know that person's different." When you, even if you don't recognize it or understand what's going on, you know you're different inside. There's something there. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, don't, like, don't flinch, don't say anything kind of thing. I think my nana actually said to me one day, oh, he's one of your friends, isn't he? And I was
5: about 15. And I was like, I don't know
2: Dale.
3: I don't
5: know who he is. But it's, it's yeah, but then, but then it like, what it does, that that thing of not being able, being able to you know freely express who you are and living with that shame and that secrecy in that closet you know and not knowing you know I just literally just down the road from where I was at school there was a whole fucking street, Canal Street teeming with queer people you know it was booming at that time um, and I just had no idea but you know I, I was having, I was, having a, I was the head boy at my school and I was living up to, the, living up to rep, my reputation <laughs> with the deputy head boy um, in the, in the attic at my mum and dad. Supposed to be we watching Big Brother, but we weren't doing much watching. Um, uh. But, you know, we, like... that. We should have been able to be open and we should have gone to the prom together and all this sort of stuff. And I I didn't go to the prom with him, but I wanted to make a statement, so... I went in a cream succeedo obviously um, and, and it was that that was the thing that changed my life because I was waiting for that cream succeedo to arrive at the high shop and that's when I met somebody on a park bench who was older than me 26 everything I knew I wanted to be you know queer and like you know like ripped jeans and bleached hair very naughty is gay but you know a gay, you know and it was like he showed me attention and it was absolutely like the most validating thing in the world it was intoxicated so there i am now in this really inappropriate groomed relationship essentially and that's not uncommon that's not uncommon and it's not uncommon still now as well and i'm not saying that you can't have a relationship with someone who's older than you but at 16 you really don't know you don't. You think you know. You know, but you don't know at all. And and I think a lot of our early sexual experiences can be formed in this place of secrecy and this place of shame. And that's really powerful when you're making your first psychosexual bonds. And I think for, in later life, that's meant I, I've always I've often seeked greater and greater thrill through sex, and that's got me into some really really problematic places and and kind of emotionally damaging places. And it's taken a lot of work to unpick all that and go, actually, the sex that I desire and want is not shameful. And I need to speak about that more openly and not retreat and go and seek it in these kind of shameful spaces.
7: Yeah. I think just to like, sort of go at the back of that, you're completely right. Like, uh, I know for myself and a lot of other gay people, aka my massively gay brother over there. Um, Hi, Alex. Um, when you're from like a society or group or a smaller town and it's and you have that shame surrounding that subject and that topic what does it actually create a really really dangerous environment because then your only way to go and sort of seek out these experiences be it sexually because you're growing a teenager and i was literally i was like 14 had a great time um but I had a great time with some very, very problematic people. Do you know what I mean? Like I was do you remember Gaydar? Yes. We Love to be a bit oh, of gaydar, gaydar back in the day. Yeah. So I'm at the meat market. <laughs> and I was like talking to these once again, it's the same thing, these like these older, like queer people that were quite comfortable themselves and that was like it was intoxicating. It was nice to feel like validated, and I felt sexy, so I felt like they understood me, and I was like, oh, they see how I'm, like, really mature for my age and stuff. probably wasn't the fact that they might have been an aunt. Um, but, um... And next, it, feels,
5: it feels like a rite of passage doesn't yeah, it and yeah, it's something yeah. that I've always taken I mean partly because of my own experiences but I've always taken real issue with our community and like there's loads of things to be really proud about our community but there's lots of, there's lots of trauma people and, and, and I have a lot of compassion for that but we have, to, we have to be able to speak out and be like do you know what actually there's a better way and we should be working towards a better way for ourselves Well,
2: speaking out kind of stops the cycle doesn't it it stops things continuing I remember when I came out I remember and I, I've written about this in my, in my book, I remember thinking um, it's hilarious really when I think about it now, there was a guy that I worked with and um, he won't watch this so it doesn't matter, but um, I remember him being like, oh you know, the way to be gay is straight acting and you know, always be a top um, so I was like, right, then I'm a straight acting top and it couldn't be further from the truth, it's hilarious it's just the most ridiculous thing that ever but at that time when you're 19 and when you're influential and people you look up to and you know people like influence you and you think that's how i should be you then you you're seeking identity because you you don't know how to when you've whenever you've heard of shame or you've heard of ridicule or you're wrong or there's something wrong with you when someone says no you can be who you can be but actually be this you go well okay that's the way to kind of succeed and i think there's that's probably still really prevalent in the community as well it's like right let's you know be mask be a top be whatever you know there's a real hierarchy and issue in, and i think that's something we need to keep talking about because that really bothers me there's
5: well we we go we want to be free we want to be free from this gendered heteronormativity and then we're like i'm a mask top and that's all i am <laughs> no. and it's like we put ourselves into these categories you know i only like otters or you know and it's like and it, it's it's so I get it because we, we desperately, we're seeking something, we're seeking connection, we're seeking a tribe. And, you know, and as you're young and impressionable and you kind of fall into it. I fell into it, you know, and, and pornography is so masculine. And, you know, and it's only really in, in the last 10 years or so where I've really, like, my friendship group has become much more queer. Um, and, you know, and I've, they've really helped me embrace my softer side, my feminine side, my, you know, my queerer side and go, wow, I was missing so much. Like, i want to shake some people and be like, it's so brilliant over here. Come and join us. It's great.
2: Join the clan. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. What about you? What what kind of things did you hear growing up that influenced your identity and your discovery of identity?
4: Well, I mean, I think the first thing before anything that I always have to acknowledge is my blackness. So like... Before I heard, oh, you're gay and stuff like in school, I remember wearing a brown suit because that's what I like to wear. I like to wear suits when I was younger, apparently. Um, And I went to school and I was wearing a brown suit. And I will never forget the day that someone came up to me and went, ew, it looks like you're naked. And... Now let's unpack that. Wearing a brown suit that is close to my skin tone and someone coming up to me and saying, ew, it looks like you're naked. Now I can understand shame being hardwired into kids about nudity because parents are being quite strict about it. That's fine, and I get that. But it wasn't an ill like a like a naughty, like laughing, like ill. It was genuine disgust. And so the first thing that I ever learned to do was to hate who I was period. I didn't like my skin color. I never wore brown. I never wore green because I had been told that I looked like a tree. When I had an afro, it was even worse. Then people would stick pencils in my hair and act like those were the branches of the tree. And so that was my first experience that helped me learn to hide myself. But I hid that from one One subset of people, which is again why I say that when I think about identity, I think about it in three. Because as a black person navigating these spaces, you have your identity at home. But your identity at home, when your grandma calls you and you might um, respond in your native tongue and then slip into English and have a bit of an accent, is the same thing that's going to get you bullied in school. So while I was in school, or while I was out, or while I was at Pride, or wherever it was, I was the really white black guy. I spoke... As as white white as possible, um, I dressed in a similar way. Anything that was linked to blackness intrinsically, I ran away from, including my hair. I shaved my hair like off completely. I have only just started having a relationship with my hair in the last two years. I shaved my hair off completely every two days from when I was like maybe sixteen up until about twenty
7: five. And your hair looks incredible, by the way. Thank
4: you, darling. Whether it grows or I paid for it, it's mine, and that's all that matters. Um, but then, after that, as well, um, the other ways, the other things that I heard that I learned were code for don't be who you are were. Oh, don't hold your hand like that. Don't walk like that. When you sit, don't do that. When you talk, don't drag your words out at the end because you sound too feminine. You need to be brisk. Don't, when you shake a hand, shake it like this because right now it's limp. It's weak. Don't don't sit like that. Don't stand like that. Don't do this. You can't wear these colors. You can't do... Like, I... Constant, yeah. Consistently. So, when I would be the really white, gay, black guy, I would dress all of the ways that I was not allowed to be at home. And then when I was allowed to be black, I was not allowed to be any part of myself because I was at home. And this is not like, it's not like one of those like, oh my God, crazy, oppressive, my parents hate me. No, they don't. They love me very much. They just did not have the tools, the equipment, the knowledge, the resources, the discourse that is currently happening through society that we now have to be able to have supported me. But my whole experience, my whole life has been learning to love parts of me that somewhere someone thinks is ugly all the time. And so when I have moments with myself, when I have to like stop for a minute or pause and like no lie here, like it's very, very easy for me to slip straight into like I can't get up, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't do anything. Because every single day of my life, when someone tells me something, I have to run it through like a truth checker, a verification database. If someone comes at me for my existence in any way, shape, or form, I have to have libraries and libraries worth of information to defend my existence not only as a queer person but as a black queer person and then be able to reason that to white people but then also reason that to black people and you have to do it in so many different ways there are so many languages that i speak within english alone that like the moment that i have time that i actually need to stop I'm scared that I won't be able to get up and start again.
2: Exhausting, I guess. Yes. Is it, it, I mean, obviously, we have UK Black Pride, and, you know, um, I think there's loads of research and evidence out there that to be in a a minority or an intersectionality within. A community is, is tough. Do you think it's getting easier for... No,
4: it's not. Because you have a lot of white woke warriors who want to put their mouths in conversations that have nothing to do with them. And I think there's a very perfect... A, a beautiful example is something that I'm going through right now. A couple of days ago, I posted an image that said ExecuFish. It was like a little play on words. Some people would say they don't like fish because they feel like it's deep, deeply rooted in misogyny and I can completely understand that and I can understand that from their perspective. Now take that perspective, which is a white perspective. That is the thing that you associate it with. Take a black person who comes from West Africa who also eats seafood, who had a grandmother come to their house and when they were cooking, because she wanted to bring a taste of the home country or whatever to the kitchen and to your life, you go to school and for two weeks you're called fish boy. Your meaning... Your perception of what it is for your culture, which also went around the world and imposed itself on everyone, raped and pillaged and destroyed fucking nations. You want to now come and tell me how I should police myself and how I speak about myself? Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Like, are you fucking kidding me? It just doesn't make sense. So for me, I think that actually right now, because so many people have so much access to so many things that they think that they're fucking Dr. Doolittle for the queers and they want to, you know, self-prescribe self-pres- all of this self-help and blah, blah. And I'm like, Janet, when was the last time you, were, you took a Sertraline or went to therapy? What are you talking about? <laughs> like... Why? Why? Like at, at this moment, I do not think that it is easier existing as, a, as 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 a historically marginalized body because you have so many people who, because they learned a little bit, want to be known to be the one that knows the most. Sometimes shut the fuck up and listen because your voice does not need to be heard. It's been heard for centuries, and look where the fuck we are.
7: Yeah, true. Just <laughs> you. I feel you're like you're amazing.
4: <laughs> I've had to go. I told line. you I was feeling Beyonce
5: Haunted.
7: <laughs> Just to like to link into what you said there and and to like to feed into your question. I feel like it's getting I I don't know, like within the queer community, and this is what I don't understand. Um obviously I could never understand it from a black perspective because I am not black. I can I can be an ally and I can be an empath and I can be those parts. But I feel like for non-binary and for trans and for certain aspects and certain avenues of queer lifestyle and living. Like, half of this um, transphobia or just queerphobia, the calls coming from fucking inside the house, Mary, because it's coming from, it's coming from, like, and let's face it, let's be honest, it's coming from either lesbian women or gay men. And then this is like, and I don't understand it. It blows my fucking mind how we can all here sit here now as people who 50 years ago would have been in a very, very different position. And we're all very aware of this because we have all of this information available to us. We're taught this. And yet we still think we're now uh, like the better than or the other than. And it's like, no, it's like, great, amazing. Pe- people like white gay men now because they're funny and in, and in like in current media and gay men, are hilarious. We love white gay men. Fantastic. What about my black trans sister? What about my, my mixed race, non-binary? It's like, do you know what I mean like, If we're not, we can't sit here and talk about equality and go to Pride and march and fucking do that. And if we're not perpetuating that every single day of the year, Pride isn't a weekend holiday where everyone just gets to be inclusive. It's within our own community, we should really, really take it onto our back to like actually start fucking loving each other, and also holding each other up and holding other people accountable. Because we don't call people out, we might say it to strangers, but if we hear stuff from family or friends, maybe we wash it over. Oh, that's okay because it's someone that I know and love. No, we need to start calling it. Do you know what I mean it's not appropriate, or you don't say that? Can it's I add called? something
4: to that yeah. really quickly? Sorry, I don't want to cut you, but like I just I'm, I'm feeling the fire again
7: Um, she's deep
4: feel it no because for me I I think everything that you're saying makes perfect sense but also I think sometimes because we are we are in a time of self care and love and I need to love myself and I need to give to myself more and blah, blah blah so and so forth sometimes babes actually stop for a second and see how much you've given to yourself because when you come into a room and you know, we're, we're all here right now. We're all, we're all sharing stories. We're all talking. Sometimes people, because they feel that they are similar, think that the experience is completely the same. It's not. It's not. A white trans woman and a black trans woman are both trans, and they are both victims to trans misogyny, and they're both victims to bigotry. But that black trans woman... When, even if she looks the fishiest, mermaidiest, cuntiest, pussiest, whatever the fuck you want to say, however you want to say it, however she looks, she's going to get a harder time simply because she's black, because black women, have been demonized, been made, made, made to be masculine. Remember when Sierra came out first and she was just dancing with her washboard abs and back bends, and everyone was like, she's a hermaphrodite. Like, you can't win. Like, any way you, any way you spin it, I, I can try and be the most femme in the world. There's still going to be people who are going to say that's a man, even if I had boobs and bottom surgery. And I know that for a fact. Meanwhile, as we, go, as, as, as we move through the world and we're going through it, we're all acting like, oh, all of our struggles are the same. Our voices are the same. No, bitch, you had a 400-year head start on human rights. You literally had a 400-year start on human rights, and you want to try and tell me that our experience is the same. You may know how I think as a person, you may know how I feel as a friend, but you will never be able to know my experience if you don't listen. And if when I start talking about my experience, you think that you want to complete my, ex- my sentence, think again. <laughs> Because you couldn't. Because the language of pain, of hardship, of, of code switching, of having to understand everyone while each and every single person that you are trying to understand spits in your face for the love that you give them, you don't know it.
2: And that's that. Thank you.
4: That, that, that's me there. <laughs> that's the fire put out.
7: you're feeling so kind of
2: no, I'm, I'm really glad that you've shared that. And, and I think that, you know, this is why these conversations are so important because, you know, we have to keep this conversation going and mean that we give voices to people to tell their truths and their experiences and people need to listen. You, you kind of, you know, hit the nail on the head there. That's really important. What about, so we've talked about drag mm-hmm. before. And you've talked about your superpower of drag and um, what it does for you. How much now do you think that links with your identity is there Is there a difference between shallow and Anthony or do you think that the people are kind of merging together and you're <laughs> allowing something more to come out through your art?
7: I feel like when I first started doing drag it was uh, it was a completely different persona um and it's not that i've now grown to become that persona i felt like what i was portraying was what i had like an idea of what drag should be or like this is what a drag queen should be saying and this is how a drag queen should act and then i got the confidence to sort of take it in my own avenue and started to tailor it actually to what i wanted to do um some drag queens have a very very different persona like naturally to their their drag or two go i feel like with me it's just like it's me times 100 which i know sounds fucking terrifying because you met me (laughs) outside of drag Um, and i can promise you you're right um but yeah i feel like as i've gotten on it's more just become a very much like a heightened and slightly sexualized version of myself and i get the wonderful privilege of being able to say certain things that make people feel uncomfortable and put people a little bit on the spot in terms of calling out pop culture and people that are famous. I mean, we shouldn't be famous and have a laugh about it, but we we'll should call out something that I think is a serious subject to make people laugh about it and then question it. And then it then becomes part of themselves, becomes an internal tar- narrative that they might change their opinion based upon, which is what I ultimately want um, to people to just reflect and stuff. So for me, it's just, it's an, it's an avenue of my own identity that I get to project.
6: That's what I want to ask. In drag then, tell us, is it are there two yous or is it is it one you or how does it how does it work
7: I basically feel like with Vera it's it's me that can go into the bar say what I want to say and I don't get get my head kicked in I get I get paid and he asked me to come back next week <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I feel like when we have this costuming on, and you'll know this from anyone who's like, or from acting and something, like you, when you have this character or you're in costume, the things you, want, you feel like you can do is, is you get to live vicariously through this mask and this character, which is amazing. But also the things that you get to get away with doing, if you are someone that is performing in drag, people have a completely different mindset on how they take this information from you. If I was to deliver my parody about Prince Andrew being a nonce out of drag, um, people might have an issue when I deliver it I in drag. Yeah, I know that right? <laughs> I, like, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> But what do you do it in drag, like, oh my god, this is hilarious and it's comedy, but oh my god, isn't that true? And I'm like, Yes it is. <laughs> and so people then take it in a different way. So for me it's it's a really, really wonderful avenue of my own self expression. And I then get to finish off the Little eighties Power Ballad. So I tend to like have like political at the start yeah. to get my own version Across.
6: Can I ask then, what's your process in do you is it off the cuff or it's obviously planned do you write do you write the set or what, how do you prepare
7: um, I write my parodies um, a lot of my uh, comedy at the moment is completely off the cuff and um, ADHD helps with that wonderfully Um, <laughs> but, um <laughs> Um, but yeah with, um, with parodies and stuff it's I it's, usually have like a, like an inspiration moment or something or I hear something and then it's just like fire in my brain I'm like right I've got to get that out and I can usually write a parody within like 15 minutes cause, mm-hmm. but once I have that inspiration train running it's absolutely fine but I've got to feel like um, insp- <laughs> just, got, <laughs> just got to feel inspired by something I think it's the same anyone who's got an artistic sort of side to them once you have that moment when inspiration strikes just grab it and take it and then you just go with it But yeah, it's definitely, to answer that question, finality drag is not a complete now part of... It's just an extension of my own... Of you. Do, Do
2: you think that it's helped you to accept more about your gender identity, sexuality, queerness? 100%. And is that through being like an alter ego or is that just because actually when you can be that free, it allows you to tap into the yeah. other sides. It's,
7: it's the level of confidence that I gained from it that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't started doing drag. I would still probably have that level of internalized shame of my queerness, and my campness, and flamboyancy, and these things might be something that I would still have a level of shame of. So if it wasn't for that drag, probably if not change would probably save my life, to be quite honest with you. If I was still feeling that way now, knowing what I've gone through since then. I don't know if I'd be sat here now on this stage to have this conversation, if that makes sense, which is a bit, fucking uplifting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's um, but yeah, but it's bad, So actually through doing that and I created another persona so that I could truly explore my own identity. It was it an was extension of me. And once again, maybe your survival technique, because I was saying earlier, this is something that I did so I could explore that part of myself and find these bits out. And actually it was one of the most wonderful things I did. So if anyone here has never put on opposite gender clothing before, I absolutely recommend it. Liberating.
2: Well, I saw you get ready on Friday and it's honestly, it's an amazing like transformation. How, it's like yeah. I didn't. Is I didn't labor? watch you talk but but I, d- I did see everything else happen. I was like, wow, how did this all come together? It's incredible.
4: Can I? I just want to actually just because what you were saying about drag and it being transformative and being like a gateway. I I definitely resonate with that because I used to do drag. My name was Ori Ho because I like biscuits and I'm a slut apparently. Um, I'm not. I'm not a slut. I'm taken. Um, I do like biscuits though. Um, and i when I think about drag for me when I started it, I think about the video games that I used to play. I'm a Marvel comics universe person, and so my brother 's boyfriend just came in the back uh, <laughs> right? and so you, you know when when you are like going from like one level in X men Legends to another, you can like get to a checkpoint and then go into a training room and like practice with your powers, and I genuinely feel that We actually start doing this as children. We practice our powers by getting up and playing dress up and being Batman or Catwoman or being able to fly and slowly but surely the school system that is supposed to educate us and empower us strips us of any sense of individuality or individual thinking or unique thinking so that we come out of it completely not wanting to explore. If... I I genuinely, genuinely feel that if dress-up time was allowed in schools from like zero up until year four and your teacher had to be involved in it as well, the conversation around gender and gender identity and gender expression would move light years ahead. It would move light years ahead because you're forcing everyone I mean forcing but not forcing you know what I mean <laughs> like you're forcing everyone to actually stop and literally put on someone else's shoes yeah. Yeah. and stop and be like how does this feel for you how do you think it feels for them? When you're a really rambunctious little boy and you want to run around and do cartwheels and you feel restricted by the dress, but you're running around in the playground and going, ha ha, you can't do that. All of a sudden, my man is not doing that
2: anymore because he gets it because he tried to do a cartwheel in a little pleated skirt and it didn't work.
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> but I think a lot of that is fear, isn't it? Because it's like the things you're told when you're younger. Like I was told you know, we had this conversation about nails, but I was told boys don't paint their nails, boys don't do this, girls do, that's a girls thing. Gender is so ingrained in our society. And, you know, that would just free the fear, I think, what you're suggesting. But
4: is gender ingrained in our society or is sex ingrained in our society? Because cishet society will try and tell you that gender identity is what it is. No, it's sex and roles. Sex and roles within a relationship and a situation, and we are being conditioned to feel that that is gender. Because if we actually understood that gender was not just having a dick or having tits, but also a literal formula, a code in your DNA, and if we were told that sometimes, even if it's XX or XY or whatever, there's always, there's a little variation that makes someone feel a little bit different. If we were told the truth, and not, and when I say truth, I'm not like one of those like conspiracy people, like, you know what I mean? I'm just like, if we, were, if we were literally told scientific truth about the chemicals that make us up, that we call DNA, there would be no need to converse. Mm-hmm. Instead, because we are driven by money and all of these other things, we are creating gender roles that then say that this is the thing that you do. And so this is the next step. Oh, you happen to be white and blonde and skinny at 16. Here's the next thing that you don't want to do because you don't want to grow up and be a twas, which is a a twink that was, you want to be a twunk. So you want to go to the gym and you want to do this. And then this is where you go. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's all of these, it's just like, actually, hold on a second. If we weren't so obsessed with telling kids, grow up, fuck this person, and create a child, we might actually be moving forward with the conversation around gender. We're out here talking about the fact that drag queens wanting to read to kids is horrible. Meanwhile, we have baby grows for a one-month-old that said, lady killer, or (laughs) female body inspector, or boys love me. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to pimp out a one-year-old. Like, (laughs) the fuck?
2: so true, it's so true. Nathaniel, we've talked uh, before, obviously, we did an interview uh, last year, and I'm gutted that I didn't get to see your play first time. And you mentioned it about it a moment ago, about your, your diagnosis and kind of your first experience of things, and then obviously the play that you wrote to, I guess, reclaim that situation and then make art from it. Can you talk about that and your identity and, I guess, how much that freed your experiences.
5: Oh, yeah. How long have you got? Um, I could just do the show now, if you want. (laughs) Somewhere in there. Um, (laughs) uh, Well, I, you know, I was diagnosed, like I said, at 16. Very young. First time. um, And really retreated from that. It was 2003- um, you know, for context, Will Young had just won Pop Idol the year before. Um, <clears throat> I was sporting the Gareth Gates haircut; um, it was a strong look, but <laughs> an open invitation to bullies. I think, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, just at that point where I was going through that process of like, oh, this is who I am, and this is amazing, and look at all this world, and then that, that's in front of me. There was this huge thing, and and it was like. Shame upon shame and uh, HIV stigma.
6: Can we ask what, what happened? Did you go to the doctor or did you feel ill or what I mean, happened? I
5: got a green discharge. <laughs> so um, I was really sick. I went on a, a holiday with my parents that summer. It was the summer I'd finished school. I was really, really ill on that holiday. Vomiting from both ends, shall we say. So really, really, really horrific seroconversion, which we now know at the time. Uh, I didn't know at the time. Um, and when I came back, I was sick for about three weeks. I lost a stone in weight. I was very, very poorly. And then I just kind of saw i got better and started college. And then I started to get discharged <laughs> Uh, in the first few weeks of college, and that's when I went to the clinic, and they they said to me at that time, HIV wasn't wasn't oh, I get this all the wrong way around all the time. It was an opt-in test, so they go, we're going to give you all these tests, and do you want a HIV test? So it's really all all of a sudden, it's got this gravitas, this weight, you know, even though it's a treatable illness. At at that time, although the medications weren't as good as they are now, so there's this heavy weight about it, and I just kept saying no. But the doctor obviously knew the signs were there, and they just kept trying to find. And eventually, I said yes. So that's how I found out, and I just really, really shut down. And then I sort of, I sort of carried on with this like this veneer of like being this confident queer person. Yeah, and just kind of did everything that, you know, we do and like <laughs> went to university and did stupid things like streaking across campus and, you know, traveled the world, did all these things. But uh, bubbling away under that was this secret and this shame and this feeling as well, you know, before you equals you, undetectable equals untransmissible, you know, I lived from the age of sixteen thinking that I could pass this, this virus onto someone and that's that's fucking terrifying and it has a real profound um, impact on your psychosexual being as well. So all that going on and bubbling under the surface for fifteen years, and me just going, "Oh, it's fine. I've put it on. You know, I've put it in a box and it's on a shelf, and I don't need to deal with it." And we fast forward to twenty seventeen. I'm in a really, really toxic, codependent, abusive relationship. Actually, really, really lashing out at each other because of the pain and the trauma that we're carrying. Um, and I catch myself two days. Before uh, uh, two days after, before it was, was very strange. Two days after a house party, um, and I just don't recognise myself. And I'd go, "That's the moment where I went. Something has to change here." And it was—it feels weird to say it now, but it was very dark at that point. Like I, my life was about to fall off a precipice. It was really, really bad. Um, and so, I just went, I've got to do this thing, and I've been trying to tell my family for so long. I was trying to tell my parents, like, it would get, like, you remember when to get that lump in your throat? It's like a cricket ball, and it's like, can't get it out. So you just swallow it back down. And, and so I was like, I have to do something that forces me. So I was like, well, make a show. That's what I do. <laughs> I help other people. I often work with other people to tell true stories. So I was like, I need to take a dose of my own medicine here. And once that, I got a commission from a theatre it was like, well, the train's at the station now. I have to tell my family. Someone was like, "Are you going to tell them? Like, are you just going to invite them to the show with I was like, "Fuck off, no." <laughs> Can you imagine the trauma? Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I turned it into this show, and I thought, like, I thought hmm. my, my 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 performing life, my my kind of creative life, had, t- had stagnated as well because of everything that was going on, and there was drugs and alcohol and sex and you know all that sort of stuff going on that was really getting in the way of me being able to be a creative. And I thought, well, I'll do this thing. I'll tell this story, and it was kind of like my. La- it might be my last hurrah. Like maybe I'm not a very good actor. Maybe I'm not a very good writer. You know. And if it goes, if it doesn't go well, I'll wave from a white flag and go into accounting or something. You know? <laughs> it's a very noble profession, but it's just not my first choice. Um, and it just. It just went phenomenally well. <laughs> like, like there was, it was World AIDS Day 2018, and I, there was a, an interview in BuzzFeed News, and that started to get shared and shared. And it was like, okay, this is snowballing. Then, you know, then some local news stations got involved. Then BBC News got involved. Then BBC Breakfast got involved. And there was this media whirlwind, and I was like from zero to a hundred literally in a a week in the space of a week um and my 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 story in bbc news was shared on the spanish speaking network so it was shared all around the world i was getting thousands and thousands of messages which was a lot like it was a lot to to deal with and the show um you know went on tour i did 100 shows it got published Mm -hmm. it landed me a role in it's Mm -hmm. a sin you know (laughs) so which you know is a kind of show you might have heard of i don't know (laughs) um and it just transformed my life. And it was, it was the decision to... I realised in that moment when I looked in the mirror that I believed the stigma and I believed the shame. Even though I said I didn't, I kept telling myself, no, no, it's fine, I don't believe that stuff. Actually, I, did, I genuinely believed it was something to be ashamed of. I felt that shame deep in my, every atom of my being and I had to turn around and start telling a new story until I stopped feeling that. And that continues, that's an ongoing process. You know, you have to keep telling that story and reminding yourself that it's, you're not ashamed of that thing. Do you think it's healing that
2: part of your identity? Do you feel like that's helped to? It saved me forward. a lot
5: of money in therapy, Andrew. Because <laughs> also, you know I, I, you know, I actually don't make a lot of money, but I've made some money from making this show. So it's kept yeah. me in employment and I've not had to pay for a therapist. I do have, I actually do have therapy alongside it because um, it's really important. But no, it has. It, and you, when you speak authentically, you you open up the door for others to to, to, to speak authentically yeah. and yeah. step into their own authenticity. Like, listen to you speak. It's just so. Powerful and refreshing because it gives other, it gives other people permission, um, and it makes space for other people to to do that as well. So, so yeah, it's been it's been a roller coaster ride, um, but I would not change it for the world. It's amazing. Is that incredible? For everyone?
2: <laughs> and we have to mention your—I'm going to say gorgeous because he is gorgeous. Your
5: gorgeous boyfriend, Sean, last yeah. week did the London Marathon yeah, for the Terence
2: Higgins Trust. Yeah, he hate,
5: he hated every minute. <laughs> <laughs> he got. I saw him at mile 6 and he was alright mile 17 is like never again <laughs> never again but he but did 5 hours 15 minutes yeah so everyone can still donate to that they can moment, yeah though. yeah if to go to my Instagram and find him and you can go to the link and top up his donations to THT he's made nearly 3 grand so yeah. amazing that's incredible yeah um i think i need a break i need a wee i am completely
2: honest with you everyone i'm not gonna lie that tinto is going right through me um <laughs> so shall we have a little break and then come back and talk sure. a bit more yeah thank you everyone the conversation doesn't stop here check out the next part of this podcast episode on your streaming platform you will not be disappointed i really hope you enjoyed the show a big thank you once again to all my guests please share the podcast give it a five-star review if you'd like and leave any comments you may have you can also follow me on instagram twitter and tiktok for all the latest updates on queer i am the podcast also check out my website www.flueyactually.com thank you so much for listening until next time